I apologize about that. Not quite sure what happened, but um, all right. So the Hebrew word that very is, is meant to be a translation of is ma'oid. Um, and ma'oid is a very actually difficult word to translate into Hebrew, in, into English, because there isn't like one English word that really captures this idea. But the word ma'oid, which is spelled mem aleph dalid, um, means um, beyond the limits, like very much, above and beyond. Okay? So, for instance, we're commanded in the Shema to love Hashem our God with all of your a very much, all of your above limits. In other words, the love should transcend any kind of limitation. So, the term, the fact that the term is used is, is that this, whatever you're saying, shouldn't have limits, shouldn't have. I did, I dealt with it. So the, the word, the, the word um, is, is meant to indicate that there's no limits to this. Now, that means even if something is feasible for a certain number of people, or even many people, you can't call it ma'oid because ma'oid very means that it has to apply to everyone without any limitations. And what the Altar is going to explain is that the idea that you can use your mind to change how you conceive of God enough to make the concept of God emotionally compelling is not a realistic thing to everybody. And arguably, in fact, not even to most people, as he explains. It should be recognized with certainty that even the person of understanding in the knowledge, whose understanding of God, knowledge of God is limited and who has no heart to comprehend the greatness of the Ein Sof, blessed is he, to produce therefrom on love of God, even his mind and understanding alone. However, it is a very near thing for him to observe and practice all the commandments of Torah and the study of Torah with the count, which counterbalances them all in his mouth and his heart in the depths of his heart. So the idea is that some people, their understanding of the knowledge of God is limited and they have no heart to comprehend the greatness of the Ein Sof. Ein Sof means the infinite. So there are these two limiting factors that prevent people from really taking abstract philosophical notions of God and turning them into something that is emotionally compelling. And let's go through them one at a time. The first is that they have, um, they have a limited understanding of the knowledge of God. And they also, their heart um, can't comprehend the greatness, which is weird. Why would we use the idea of a heart to comprehend it? So let's take this one thing at a time. Now, generally, if we think that someone's knowledge is limited, we would assume that that would mean that they just haven't studied enough. They haven't learned enough, right? Um, they need to read more books go to more classes, um, download more information into their mind. Um, in which case, that is, a, that is a problem that can be, I wouldn't say easily remedied, but readily remedied. Okay. However, the, the idea of knowledge in, in Hasidus is not really synonymous with our idea of information. 
Um, so I'll, I'll illustrate this with an analogy. Let's say you have a person, okay, and they take a class, okay, um, let's say, a, 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 you know, some like a college level class on Renaissance literature, okay? So they you read literature from the Renaissance, they take a class on it. Would you expect that the average person who took such a class would then be able to come up with their own theories as to how the Renaissance and its literature was different from the literature beforehand and how and what ways it affected the larger culture of the Renaissance just after taking one class? I don't think most people could do that, right? Now, the interesting question is, if they kept taking more and more and more and more classes, okay, would they then be able to do that? And what you'll start to notice is that some people, they can speak quite um, knowledgeably on the subject, but all they're doing is regurgitating what they've been taught. They're not actually offering their own unique insights, are they? Right? That when you have something with it which has a lot of nuance and a lot of expertise, even someone who's quite knowledgeable and proficient in the subject doesn't mean they're actually offering any novel perspective. Right? Most, in fact, most people that teach subjects do not have their own novel insight into it. They might be well-versed in the subject, but what they're really doing is processing what other people have come up with and then repackaging it for other people, but they're not actually providing their own unique insights. Now, in the, in the university system, at least in theory, this is all in the ideal, I'm not saying this is how it actually works, but in the university system, there is, there is a special title for someone who has come up with a novel insight into a particular field of study that has really contributed to that field of study and opened it up a new perspective, and there's a new insight that's really their own. Does anyone know what, what title we give such a person in the academic professions? An expert? No, it's a, it's a more formal title. A doctorate? A doctorate, that's right. To get a doctorate in a field, you need to demonstrate to people who are themselves proficient in the field that you have opened up something new. You have a new perspective. Your mind has been able to take this area in a new direction in some way that's significant. Now, I'm not saying that everyone with a doctorate actually has done that, right? We all know that real world is more messy, but that's the ideal, okay? Getting a doctorate in physics is hard because to get a doctorate in physics, it's not good enough that you understand all the physics. You need to know something and contribute something that nobody else, you have to have your own unique insight. Now, what goes into having your own unique insight is much more than simply being well-versed in a subject. It's more than simply being, being informed, not being confused. What else do you need to do in order to offer a real novel insight that holds up to scrutiny in any area? What would you need other than information? You have to think outside the box. Okay, but what enables some people to do that and other people not? 
And by the way, some people do it in certain areas and they can't do it in other areas. Why? Intelligence. I mean, right. You have intelligence. Intelligence is definitely a factor. What about yeah, but they're very, they're, they're very intelligent people that, that can't do more than that. So what else? Confidence in their skills. Confidence. Good. What else? They also have to be able to um, test the truth and be skeptical about the said truth. Right. Because if you're going to offer your own novel insight, if you're just going to go with your first gut instinct, you're going to crash and burn very quickly. Whether it's in a science or in a philosophy or in law or theology, it doesn't matter, right? You have to be critical of your own thought to fine tune it, right? Because most of what anybody comes up with is going to be garbage. So confident on the one hand, skeptical of yourself or critical of yourself on another hand. How about devoted? Can you like come up with a novel insight that really opens things up as like a side project that you do like, you know, a half hour twice a week? Is that gonna work? So what you need a person who's informed. You need a person who's devoted, who's dedicated, who's confident, who's open-minded, who's critical, right? And they really immerse themselves in something. Now, do you think that's a reasonable expectation to have of every single person? Like people have lives to live. People have things on their head, right? In other words, to, to the author was saying is to actually take something that is remote and abstract and develop an emotional relationship with it. You need to be real to you the way, say, a, someone who's trying to involved in, in a doctorate or postdoctoral studies, their subject matter is real to them. Most people don't have any real emotional relationship with something as abstract or as remote as Renaissance literature. They just don't, okay? And they can take a class and they can study for it and they can pass it and they can remember and they can you know, maybe do well on Jeopardy. But that doesn't mean that it has the visceralness that it elicits emotional responses, right? The people that tend to have that kind of deep emotional response to something that remote and that abstract are people that their whole lives become dedicated and engaged into the inquiry of that thing. And so the idea that you're gonna take something that's even more abstract and more remote and more ethereal, namely the greatness of God, and make that as tangible and as visceral as everything else in life to elicit genuine emotional responses, that means basically you're saying this person has to engage God the, the, the theological issues of God with the same degree of open-mindedness and criticism and confidence and devotion and, and, and um, erudition that we expect from people who are studying for their doctorates or involved in postdoctoral research. And that's great. There are people like that, but we can't say that that means everybody is capable of developing that kind of a connection with profound theological notions. And then they're going to feel a passion for their Judaism. That's just not a realistic expectation to expect of, of everybody. So, and this is one of the, one of the, the I would say, um, lies, I don't know lies, maybe it's too strong a word, but one of the, the, the falsehoods that can be propagated is that a lot of Hasidus does deal with abstract things, 
and there's a value in learning those abstract things of themselves. But whether they can help you develop a more emotionally um, engaged relationship with the practice of Judaism is it, it, a lot more suspect because it does depend on you know, the kind of person you are as how you engage with that. And people are limited in that regard. So that's one issue. And, and the way you can ask, the way you can kind of ascertain this is again, is, is a person's knowledge of the greatness of God, of the, in, of the infinite, something that they are able to reproduce from what they've read and what they've heard? Or do they have a rigorous, that would hold up to scrutiny, novel take that is the product of their own mind? If they do, they're more likely to be able to cultivate an emotional relationship. If they don't, that approach is probably not going to work so well. If someone had a question. Yeah. Your, your microphone is off. I can't hear you. Hello? Do you hear me now? Yes, now I hear you. Um. I'm just trying to understand why the connection between um, someone getting a novel insight in a particular field and turning something that we understand from abstract into something that's visceral. Like what's, what, what's the commonality between the two processes? The level of, the level of mental engagement. Right. Those. The, in other words, to take something abstract and make it real enough to elicit emotion, it have to be deeply mentally engaged. Reframing what you're already ready engaged with. So again, if you insult me, well, I'm already mentally engaged with that. Now the question is just reframing it. But if something isn't real enough to me that elicits emotion at all, reframing is not going to help. I have to mentally engage in a whole deeper way, and that kind of correlates with that rigorous novel perspective. That's that's what happens when your mind engages with something in a very deep way. And so when you realize that, we also realize it's lit, how this approach is also very limited. It's not something that most people can do most of the time. It's some people that only some people can do sometimes and very few people can be doing and with that irregularity. Which doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn about those things, but that's often why they seem to be very impractical because as the author is conceding here, they are. Now he has a second limiting principle which is they have no heart to comprehend the greatness of the Ein Sof. Ein Sof means infinite blessed be he. Now, why would we associate comprehension with the heart? Generally, the, 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 the heart tends to represent emotion, how we feel, and the brain represents comprehension, concepts, ideas, the abstract, the intellect. So why would the heart be associated with comprehension. So for that, it's important to understand what is the model that Hasidus views emotions as following. What, it, what, what are emotions? How do emotions work? And more specifically, um, emotions which are not instinctual. So Hasidus makes a dividing line between what we'll call instinctual emotions versus 
human emotions. So an instinctual emotion is you feel threatened by something. Okay? You, per- you perceive something as a threat. And as a result of that, you feel afraid. You might also feel aggressive. You feel defensive. Um, right? So those feelings are you perceive something in a certain um, basic category, let's say threat, and that arouses an instinctual emotion. Um, and it's the same thing with other things, like say, for instance, the fact that we desire food. And in this, there isn't really a huge difference between a person and an animal. Okay? And by the way, these emotions can be, can be not just selfish, they can, be, they can be, have more altruistic. So for instance, um, the fact that when we see somebody suffering, okay, and that makes us uncomfortable, that's very instinctual, right? Social animals feel an instinctual discomfort when seeing pain okay, in, an, in another creature that they can, that they can empathize with. So that what, what, what these things all have in common is that they're like triggers ready to be pressed. So if, you, if your mind categorizes something in one of these pre-existing categories, then you just, the associating emotions will get triggered. It's more complicated than that, but for our purposes, we'll leave it with that. But then there's this other thing called human emotions. And human emotions, as distinct from the animal emotions, again, we have animal emotions as well. Human emotions um, require um, a process of acculturation, a process of learning. Okay? Well, let me give you an example. If you pay attention to um, something, let's say, say music, you have a piece of music. Actually, before that, you listen to some music. Some piece of music, you like it. Some music you don't like. Some music you want to hear again. Some music you don't want to hear again. Okay. But what if you hear a piece of music, and rather than just liking it or disliking it, you really pay attention to the music. You really um, let it sink in, hear it in, different, in, in, in its different component parts, how it comes together. Right? You wallow in it. What does that do to you as a person? Are you the same person after the, uh, that experience in a prolonged way that you were before? Or have you could be changed in some way? You see what I'm saying? That there are things that when we pay attention to, when we engage with, that actually change a little bit of how we are, how we relate, not just to that thing, but to everything. They shape somewhat of our character and our personality, right? You can also have this, a person reads this, right, a book. Sometimes people say, oh, I read this book and it really changed me. It was very formative, okay? That we can engage things in our, in our reality that reshape us so we come out being sometimes a slightly different person and sometimes a very different person. So what's happening there? It's not just that there's these preset things that are being triggered, but we're actually changing um, the character and the kind of person we are to some degree or another, okay? So for instance, okay, when a person is in a relationship with another person, so whether it's a marriage, whether it's being a parent, whether it's having a relationship with a close friend, an adult sibling, and I want to speak specifically about being an adult in a relationship, not a child in a relationship. That's a little bit different. 
If you're in a relationship with another person and your relationship, it goes beyond merely coordinating your actions. I do this, you do that, et cetera, et cetera. But you're actually engaged in a process of trying to know who the other person is, letting the other person know who you are, um, being attentive to who they are, exposing things about yourself to them, right? What happens to you over time is that you're actually not the same person that you were when you started off before that relationship, right? That the awareness and involvement of someone or something else that's rich and deep in your life actually starts to reshape how we feel, not just about them, but about all sorts of other things as well. So is it clear this distinction between these two types of emotions, the ones that are just merely kind of preset instinctual responses that get triggered versus this way of reshaping who we are? Is anyone not clear on the difference between the two before I go forward? Okay. Now, when, when Hasidus wants to speak about how our emotions um, are something that can be molded, right? They, shape, they can be shape a character and the kind of person we are. So that means the emotions have to be, for lack of words, educatable. They have to be taught how to be different. And so in some sense, they have to comprehend, they have to understand, right? Just like if you want to teach a child how to do something, they have to comprehend what you're saying, right? That if you want to teach a child how to do long division, right? They have to comprehend the instructions. If you want to teach a child something a little more profound, such as a moral principle, and you want them to really adopt it, they really have to comprehend the, not just the idea in the abstract, but the, 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 the imperative. They have to get it. And so the idea is that a human heart or the human emotions have something that animals don't have, which is the ability to be re-educated, to, be, to, be, to, to, to not just... Um, act differently, but to feel differently. So let's give an example, okay? What happens to a person emotionally if they are put in a position of leadership over other people where the decisions they make can have serious effect on the other people's lives? So let's say, for instance, um, you're in charge of a company and you could fire people and they could lose their job. Okay. Or your more intense example, you're um, a, a leader in a military unit and decisions you make can cost people their lives, right? Or you're a doctor deciding how the course of an operation should go. What happens to you take a person and you put them in that kind of a situation and they really engage with this reality that they're a leader, people are looking up to them, people are counting on them. Do they experience different things and do they experience things differently than they would otherwise do if they were just a private person living their own life? Right? You, you get that? that they, they, right? That people, people who often enter these things will, will talk about, I mean, depending on how open they are, they talk about how like, the, there's a sense of heaviness, and there's a sense of burden and other kinds of emotions that you just don't experience if you're just your individual self living your life, reacting to the environment around you, okay? Or you can take another example, right? People who have been married, right? And an emotionally engaged marriage for decades on end, right? Their sense of 
togetherness is something that they could have never have imagined before they got married, at the beginning of the marriage. Okay? Or take another example. A sense of, the sense of concern and sense of identity and what that means and how that makes us feel can change radically when a person goes from not being a parent to being a parent. Or when a person goes from having a child who's a toddler or a small kid to all of a sudden realizing that their child is a full person, they're a teenager, they're an adult, and they engage in somewhat equal level, at least in terms of their mental capacities. These change not just whether we're feeling happy or sad or angry or calm, but there are different kinds of emotions. And, and there's a process of learning what, the, what that is and, 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 and maturing and growing and becoming a different person. Now, here's the thing. We instinctively like things. We're drawn to things. We, feel, we, we, we like things that make us feel good. So here's a list of things that make us feel good. Okay. Food makes us feel good. Okay. Compliments make us feel good. Wanted physical contact makes us feel good. Okay. Beauty makes us feel good. Okay. What do all, what do these things and other like them all have in common? About things that just, you know, make people feel good in general. So we all have positive feelings towards things. What do they all have in common? They give us pleasure. But how do they give us pleasure? Via what? How do we experience them? They say something about us? Well, so something positive? I, wouldn't, um, I mean, a compliments usually say something positive at you. You experience them all directly with your senses. Right? You see the beautiful things. You taste the food, you smell the food, there's a texture in your mouth, right? You hear the compliment, right? You see the expression of the person's face when they feel positively towards you, right? You can feel the physical contact, right? We can add pleasant music, right? You can hear the music, right? So, and then we can do the same thing for other things. In other words, our instinctual emotions um, generally work through, to some degree, our senses, okay? Now, what about something that you cannot taste? You cannot hear, you cannot see, you cannot smell, you cannot touch, you have no sensory experience of. And it doesn't get embodied into some sensory experience. So then how does it trigger your emotions? How does it, how does it trigger your instincts? And the answer is it can't, okay? Let's take an example, okay? So there's a concept that people say that they love freedom. You ever heard this idea? People say they love freedom. Some people do, some people don't. But you ever people have said this idea, they love freedom? What does it mean to love freedom? I mean, I know what it means that I love to do the stuff that I want to do without people getting in the way of me. That I know what it means. But is that what people mean when they say they love freedom? Because then you're just not saying it. You're just saying, I love X, and I don't like it when you stop me from doing X. You don't love freedom. You love X, whatever X is. I love eating pizza. I don't want you to stop me from eating pizza. Right? What does it mean to love freedom? I think it has to do with just the loss of restrictive powers on you. You get to do what you want. There's no, there's no one watching you. No one is stopping you. 
so then what you're saying is that there is no such thing as love of freedom. There's love of the stuff that you want to do. And you don't like it when people stop you. Well, just the really, of restriction. But that's not you. I mean, so, I mean, but, you, but to be honest, like, you're not even opposed to the concept of restriction. You're opposed to being restricted. Like, as a concept, it's fine. Like, you may even take a, take a course in restriction and, like, you know, teach teach restriction as it's been through history and make money off of it. Yeah, you don't have no problem with the concept of restriction. You just don't want to be restricted. You don't want someone actually stopping you. You, you hear what I'm saying? It, 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 most people, when they say they love freedom, they don't really love freedom. What they love is whatever they want to do, and they don't like it when people stop them. What would it mean to actually love freedom? As, 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 as the, that the freedom itself is the object of your love. What would that mean? Well, you, you can love freedom in the sense that you actually have boundaries because, because of the boundaries, you're free to live in a productive way. Okay, but, but then what you're saying is I like, I like living in a productive way. I guess. Are you willing to die so that somebody else doesn't have to suffer the indignity of being dictated how they should live their life? If you're there's a person. There's, a, there's another person. You don't know their name. You never met them. And they have to suffer the indignity of having another person dictate how they live their life. And that bothers you so much, you're willing to die to make sure that doesn't happen. If your relationship with freedom is what you were describing before, like the relationship that someone that's getting a doctorate and they have true novel insight in the subject matter that they start experiencing it in a visceral way than they would. All right. So, so it, what has to happen here is that freedom itself becomes something that you've become a culture to responding to. It's not, I like freedom because freedom allows me to do X. Freedom itself is the object of my love. And there's that kind of an emotion can only be experienced that, that human emotion. There's nothing instinctual about loving freedom. Because what it means to love freedom is that there's, there's this abstract reality of what it is to be free, which we could debate. I'm not going to go into what, the, what freedom is. And the nobility in that and the dignity in that and the, 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 the depth of what that is, is so powerful that it changes who I am and how I want to live my life. And the, the ultimate manifestation that would be is that, is that and for, the, for the preservation of that, I'm willing to give everything up, even my own life. That would be like an extreme version of that. But, right, in other words, your emotions are not being triggered by something in the natural world that you're instinctually responding to. That's not these kinds of emotions. Love of freedom doesn't work that way. Okay? Being upset that someone else is telling me what to do and I can't do things I want to do might work that way, but that's not love of freedom. And we can go on with other things. Right? We can talk about, if you just want to use love as the example, we can talk about love of justice, love of honesty. These are things you don't experience in the world 
and then you react to. These are something that your heart has to become educated. It has to, it has to, it has to, it, it has to become a culture to. And that is a process of changing you. So the heart, it, the heart, the emotional, the emotional side of a person, their human emotions, they're malleable. They can be improved upon. They can be worked upon. They can, they're not just natural instincts. Now, I think we should all realize if we're going to reflect for you know, half a minute or two on that, we realize that's actually very hard to do and not all of us are equally capable of it, right? Not all of us are equally capable of allowing something profound to really change the character of who we are, the kind of person that we are, how we feel about living life in certain ways. I mean, the most obvious example, right, is that when a person's a child, as a general rule, we have zero expectation they should be able to do that. Right? So there's this, if you want to call it maturity, although I'm not sure that's the best word, there's this ability to actually reshape who we are emotionally. And the more remote the thing is, the harder it is to do that. And if we're going to say that the greatness of God is going to elicit an emotional response, you don't get to see the greatness of God. You don't get to touch the greatness of God. You don't get to experience it with your senses. You can, by the way, experience the greatness of God's works. And there can, you can feel tremendous love towards the world that he created, right? That's, that's something many of us have, right? You go outside, you know, in the night sky outside the city, and you see the stars and you're struck with awe. But the awe you're feeling is not towards God. The awe you're feeling is towards the sky, which was made by God. But that's not the same thing as feeling something towards God. And so the Alter Rebbe says here, there's this other limiting factor that there's this, a person needs a certain degree of, of understanding in their heart, meaning a certain degree of the ability to reshape who they are in light of something profound and something um, abstract that not everybody is sufficiently equipped for. Most of us, we live our lives in very tangible ways, reacting to what we can experience with our senses. Right? For every, using, for every person who's willing to die for freedom, you have another thousand that are willing to die because they heard a rousing speech. Right? That's how you know, actual wars for values are really fought. So the idea that we're going to study about the greatness of God, and then we're going to think about it, and then we're going to feel something that is emotionally impactful, that changes how we feel about our Judaism in a day-to-day thing, it's not impossible. But, and I'll use this word, it's quite elitist. And so there's a need, if the, if the Torah says this is very near to you, it's ma'oid, it's without limits, there needs to be an approach that doesn't have any of these preconditions. That can apply to any regular person. Any person who's sufficiently, you know, you know they're not a child, there's not, you know, they're not, they're not, there's nothing like, you know, that seriously wrong with them. That living an everyday life, they can, it's within their capacity to actually do. And so the Alter wants to open up a whole new approach that doesn't require on these more elitist um, perspectives, more elitist attitude. Okay, so that takes me to 10 minutes to the end. Are there any follow-up questions or things that weren't clear or things that you felt I brushed over and didn't address? Hi. Hello. Hello. Yes, I would like to do a question. 
so why is music considered that uh, spiritually spiritual if it's um, felt with with senses? It, I didn't understand the question. Spiritual things uh, are found with the senses. I mean, uh, spiritual things are not like um, felt uh, directly with the senses, right? Or yes? Correct. Correct. They're not uh, felt so, with the senses. So why is uh, in the Jewish tradition music uh, considered that spiritually high? Uh, um, if it's uh, felt I, I, with I, the ears, with the senses. So I, I, I'm not sure that music is considered spiritually high. Music, music um, can be, but that depends on a lot of factors. So generally, um, music is music touches a person in a, in a very emotional place. Um, and when you're in a different emotional place, you might be more or less open to certain spiritual things. But music, in and of itself, um, just in the app, just generically, isn't necessarily anything spiritual. Um, okay. I've, I've never, I've never seen in any, in any, in. I've, I've not, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I think I heard it before, but maybe. So, I so wrong, yes. in Judaism, you can use things. You can use things to affect spiritual things. That there is that idea. Um, so you can use um, you can use music. You can use ideas. You can use language. You can use physical actions. There is an interaction between the between. The, the, the sensory world that we live in and the spiritual world and different things affect things in different ways. But um, let, let me just use, let me, let, let me, let, let me just use an example. The, the founder of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, he composed several songs. So one famous song that he composed, um, it, it, it describes the ascent of the soul through the four spiritual worlds, whatever they are. Okay. Now, you can listen to the music, okay? Um, you might appreciate it. You might not. You might find it inspiring. You might not. You might like it. You might detest it. There are people who don't like it. I mean, music is somewhat to be a matter of taste. Um, but even if you really like it, and even if you really enjoy it, okay? And even if it makes you feel very good and you have some sort of positive associations with it, knowing its context and whatever, um, and even if it makes you more open-minded and curious about spirituality, that does not mean you are experiencing the ascent of the soul through the four worlds. You are not actually having an experience of that. Now, with the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, when he composed that, he was actually composing something based on his own experience. He did do this thing called the ascent of the soul, and he did experience it. He was trying to convey his experience through music. Um, and so... On a conscious level, there's this, there's, there's a disconnect because you're not experiencing that. Now, maybe we want to speak about the idea that you have a soul and the soul is on, and the soul is a, a depth to it beyond your conscious awareness, and it's affected by the music. That's certainly true. But if we're talking about what we experience when we listen to music, what we experience when we listen to music is just a very generic human phenomenon. It's you know, it, it affects us um, aesthetically and emotionally, and that can be used towards positive or negative ends, and it can be used to convey different facets of human experience. If you have 
two people who are both experienced something are both very capable of experiencing profound spirituality, they can use music to convey that between themselves. But it doesn't mean that the, just listening to music is itself a spiritual experience. Um, okay. I, 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 Thank you. Yeah. Other questions? All right. If we continue to have awkward silences, I'll just use the last 10 minutes. I mean, that's also fine. Um, but I just remember the last time I was teaching, I finished the class and there was always like, you know, five or six FOB questions and I had to take it, you know, we had to stay later. So, all right. Yes. The initial idea that you opened up with, like the first approach that we're now saying we need to change, Whose approach was that? That's the Alter Abbas in chapters 3 through 17. Is it targeted for a certain kind of person? Yeah. A, I, what I would say is it's a very mature person, a very deep person, a very introspective, creative person, and a person who's very devoted. And probably has some time on their hands, to be honest. So, you know, not everybody would be the point. But, there, but it is a good approach, and if you can do it, it it's wonderful. But it, it, it's, not, it's not something that we can say that, that this, is, this is the, the way that anybody can develop a more emotionally engaged relationship with Hashem through Torah and mitzvahs if you have to be that kind of person. So. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that there's a, often a common complaint is that sometimes people learn a lot of Hasidus and there's this disconnect between the ideas and how they implement them in their lives. And this is kind of the place where the altar is acknowledging that sometimes that disconnect is like a legitimate, is a legitimate complaint because not everybody is equipped to do that. Not everybody can, you know, engage something that abstract and that profound and, and have it, engage it that deeply and be that open and that sensitive to allow it to really change them and reshape them. There are people like that, but they're, they're less common than maybe we would like them to be. Is this inability um, due to all of us being ritually impure because there's no red heifer and there's no base of mikdash at this time? No, no, but that's a very good question. It is due to, um, it is due um, to other factors. One factor has to do with the mindset of your parents when they conceive you that can have an influence another factor has to do with how you were educated and raised in other words a person that's educated in a more hedonistic way doesn't necessarily develop these types of tendencies some of it is um predisposition that's just kind of determined by god um there's the level of the soul which was something discussed in chapter two of tanya these are all factors, which makes it quite messy and not always capable of predicting. 
Um, but it also means the other way is that a person might discover later in life this aspect of themselves. So they might not have it now, but they might have it later. Or they might gener generally have it, but right now they're going through some kind of a crisis. A person might have this, but they're going through, I don't know, a war or a famine, and they don't have the, the mental um, headspace to really engage in this way. So they can also sometimes just be purely circumstantial too. So there's a lot of factors, but ritual purity with the red heifer is not one of those factors. Now, even the times of the temple, you still had this, this division. The, the, the proportions might have been different. I wasn't alive back then, contrary to popular belief. Um, but um, yeah, okay, I saw one other question. Someone did look a little hand signal thing. All right, well. Yes, uh, that was me. <laughs> Oh. Uh, so my question was regarding the that higher understanding uh, that says is chokhmah, right? Of the God, is that what we need to to be able to understand uh, Hashem to have the chokhmah? Actually, no. This higher that was actually the, the the other the thing would be bina. What the Alter is going to do in chapter eighteen and chapter nineteen is actually discuss how chokhmah is the way around this problem. And Chachmah is something we all have access to. So we're going to get to that. But Chachmah is actually going to be something that everybody can use, whereas the previous approach would be more of an approach using the trait called Bina, which is actually more selective of who can really utilize that. So we're going to get into that as the chapter continues okay. discussing what Chachmah is and how it's actually accessible to all of us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right, so tomorrow we will continue and we'll learn some positive things as opposed to what we can't do. We'll start learning what we can do because that's more uplifting, right? We don't want to spend the entire summer talking about what we can't do. So I hope to see you all then tomorrow and uh, have a good day, afternoon, morning, evening, depending on your time zone. Thank you. 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 Thank you.